As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Amos Hochstein presidential coordinator for energy security for the president of the United States would like West Texas Intermediate quickly to get back to $80 a barrel. Amos, I'm going to cut to the chase. You read the Washington Post, Steny Hoyer and others, uh, lukewarm here on the microeconomics, a price theory of an 18 cents tax on a gallon of gas. What's the plan to get oil back to $80 a barrel? Well, good morning, Tom. First of all, thank you for having me. Uh, look, since the since the late fall, when uh, Putin had amassed his troops uh, around Ukraine and ultimately the invasion, followed by global sanctions, uh, the price of uh, gasoline at the pump for Americans has gone up about two dollars, uh, and diesel probably a little bit more than that. So, what we are looking at is this historic increase in price as a result not of normal economic times but under a time of war, uh, at a time uh, of, of global security instability that is affecting uh, the market. And as a result, as we go into the, into the driving season right. this summer, uh, the president really wants to give a break uh, to American families during these three months of the summer. And that's why he's asked Congress to suspend uh, the 18-cent uh, gas right. tax. And uh, he's called on governors to do that the same. So if the governors match that, uh, that we're talking about 50 cents a gallon right. less. But I want to answer your question, Tom, directly. Look, we have done everything that we can to encourage the industry to increase production, which they, ha- which they are going to this year. Uh, record, we're going to get to record oil production at the end, by the end of this year or, or the next, next year's first quarter. Uh, we've released, the president has ordered the release of a million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Right, okay. Amos, and he led I, just the to, effort to, to do 240 million barrels. Amos, That's a lot. Here's the Tom. problem, and I know you're sitting in the Oval, uh, the Oval Office with a Bloomberg terminal next to you as you talk to the president, and you can bring <laughs> up Log West Texas Intermediate quarterly like I can. Anybody can do this. Baloney. It's about distillates, and it's about not in my backyard. How is a centrist Democrat going to explain to left Democrats that they need to come up with a not in my backyard policy to advocate greater distillate capacities in America? How do you do that? 
So Tom, you, you raise an excellent point that people tend to focus a lot on the oil production, but in reality, uh, it's that's not the issue alone, right? Uh, during the pandemic, just during the, the, the years of the pandemic, we lost a remarkable amount of refining capacity in the United States. And those refineries that went out, some of them are gone and they're not coming back. We know that they're, you know, one of them has turned into a terminal. Uh, the others though are there and we can invest, before we start talking about building new refineries, uh, we can bring back uh, potentially the old refineries that have been taken out of commission that are still there. And what we've, what the president has asked is for the industry to come to Washington to meet with Secretary Granholm uh, and to bring ideas. As he said in his letter, look, he has taken extraordinary measures over the last several months in a number of areas, uh, both in energy and beyond. Uh, he is willing to take those measures again. We're asking the industry to come and to give us their ideas. What do you need from the federal government, from, from us, uh, that we can to, we, to work with you to increase the capacity, the refining right. capacity yeah. in distillates in order to get gasoline not only produced, but then ultimately get gasoline right. and diesel to the right places around the country. I mean, Lisa, what's so important here, what Amos is talking about, is what are we going to do to politically shift the distillate debate? To me, that's the heart of the matter. The other heart of the matter, Amos, is this idea that the response to that letter that you were talking about from the president, from Exxon, uh, from Philip 66, from a whole host of other companies, was that the current administration has had obstructionist policies when it comes to the oil and gas industries, and that they have not been very clear. What is your response? at a time when they have been increasing production and they invested more than they brought in during the heart of the pandemic. So, look, that's, that's the difficulty here. Uh, people say that we are uh, standing in the way of increased production. But look at the numbers. Look at the increase in production under the Biden administration. It's hard to argue that we have done anything to stand in the way of increased production. Uh, there's been an, a rise in oil production. We know that by the end of the year or the beginning of next year, we're going to hit record production. So on average, the oil production in the United States in this last year and a half has been higher than the one under uh, but, our predecessor. Excuse me, almost. Uh, but have you met with those, the, those have, records, Lisa? Have you met with the CEOs of the big oil companies to talk about this and to talk about how things can be clearer for I them have. to produce more? You have. And are there I, going to I be have. certain and, uh, and scheduled? I can tell you. Well, sorry, go ahead. Let me, no, I, I mean, are there going to be scheduled changes in terms of more specific policies that you'll put out there that you think will allow them to refine more or create more production in the near term? Well, I, I think that they have, my point is that they have the tools they need. When I meet with the oil company executives and the CEOs, and I've asked them over the last several months, do, what do you need from us? And, and beyond what we've talked about the last several days in the press about the tone, what do you need? They don't need anything. They all say they have what they need. There are some labor shortages. There are some uh, spare parts and so on. But they don't need policy changes from the, from the U.S. administration. They have what they need. In fact, uh, on, when it comes to federal land, they have more than what they need. But as you and I both know, federal lands where government leases are, are less than 10 percent of the overall U.S. production. So the companies actually don't need anything. What they do need is bankers in New York and, and their funds, funders, to, and their investors to say, use the, the, the profits that you're having under these record prices for the last yeah. several months and invest them back into, the, into production, invest them back into refineries, okay. invest them back into equipment. Almost, uh, if I, I could just jump in there. That's where the rub beats. 
Sure. It's not just about the avail availability of the crude. It's about the ability to turn that into product, to refine it. Refining capacity is really a critical issue here. And when you speak to an oil executive, they say, why would I invest in a new refinery, which is a long-term investment, when it is known that there is an intention to get to net zero, albeit in a few decades from now, they want, they want to pivot to clean energy. So what is your messaging to CEOs when you're asking them to pump more, also knowing that eventually there wants to be, you want to wean off of fossil fuels? So two points. One, you're 100% right. It is not just about the crude oil production. It is about re refining. And as I said before, we lost a lot of refining over the last several years, specifically during the pandemic, uh, and we'd like to see that come back. But you raise a, a fair question. Why, why do you make those investments? And, that, and that's what we have to talk about. We need to make sure that we have enough oil and gas in the economy now over the next several years to meet the demand that we have in the economy. And you're right. We're not shying away from our climate goals and they're aggressive and we want to accelerate. Uh, we want to see the accelerate the movement to electric vehicles. Uh, the goals of 2030, I know the goal is about 50 percent of new car sales. 2035, you have several American companies and global uh, car companies yeah. saying that by 2035, 100% of their vehicles will be electric. So, and that, that's just new car sales. So we'll have a tail on that as right. the rest of the industry catches, catches up. So the yeah. argument that we're, we don't want to invest in refining or invest in oil production now uh, because of these policies, I don't know that that really follows through um, and, and meets the facts. We know we have the demand so I think that we'd like to work together with the with the with the industry. Tell us tell us what you need, right. and tell us how you plan to use your record profits investing back into uh, into the industry, into production, into refining, so that Americans can pay a little bit less at the pump and have uh, the products that they need uh, during this time. Amos, uh, we just have a little bit of time left. Has there been any discussion about reducing demand or possibly putting out uh, some sort of guideline to pull back in terms of how much people use akin to what we're seeing in the gas space over in Germany? Well, first, I, I think on natural gas, uh, Europe and the United States are, are vastly different uh, in our systems. Our price here is about $6. <clears throat> theirs is about $40 on natural gas. But look, the, we're, we have provided record investment through the infrastructure legislation that passed uh, into mass transit uh, and into, into rail. Uh, that, these are the things to convert people from, if we had a, a better rail and mass transit system that was efficient and fast, then people, all studies show people would move from using vehicles to moving mass transit, uh, to using mass transit. So yes, we, we'd like to put the investments to work that's what President Biden has been offering all along. How can we move people away from driving their cars to mass transit uh, and to rail? And how do we move from gasoline cars to electric vehicles, which will also reduce the demand for gasoline? Mr. So, but we have to also be realistic that we need that supply today as we get towards that better future that you're talking about. Thank you for the brief. Amos Hackstein is with the White House and with President Biden uh, with energy policy. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. 
Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Our Maria Tadeo in Brussels, and now as the Baltic states consider Ukraine as they consider Russia, a conversation with the president of Lithuania. Maria, good morning. Thanks, Tom. And let's go straight, of course, with the president of Lithuania, Mr. Nauseda. From day one, you've said Russia is a threat to European security. Ukraine has to win and we need to see NATO troops deployed in big numbers on the eastern flank. But I want to ask you about a very delicate situation for you. So I appreciate you taking the time today uh, on Kaliningrad. When you look at it on a map, it's between your country, Lithuania, Poland, but it belongs to the Russian Federation and the Russian Federation now openly accuses you, your country, of blocking transport from the Russian Federation to Kaliningrad. They say there could be real repercussions. Are you concerned? We got used to that kind of uh, manipulation, disinformation and uh, threatening. Uh, It comes uh, uh, very often. Uh, And we got used to have this very dangerous neighbor uh, uh, very near to us. And uh, this is nothing special. I just want to say that this issue we are talking, this is not bilateral issue between Lithuania and Russia. I would like to remind you that uh, in March, the European uh, Council decided on the fourth package of sanctions, which include some uh, ferrous metals, uh, iron, steel, and also some luxury goods. And what is uh, Lithuania is doing? Lithuania is just implementing those sanctions according to the rules and prescriptions of European Commission. Uh, now we are in the situation where we have to apply those sanctions imposed. And this creates, of course, some tension between Lithuania and Russia. 
but I think that uh, Russia is just acting uh, disproportionately. And they are trying to uh, use this opportunity just to blow the propaganda bubble. I would name this like this. But when you say it's a propaganda bubble, what specifically? Because the Russians, what they say is that you're preventing the Russian Federation from supplying a territory of the Russian Federation. That is Kaliningrad. What's the propaganda that Vladimir Putin is no, trying to put out? Uh, no blockade if we are talking about passengers. Because if that we are could talking mean not, a belligerent no. action. A blockade could be seen by, by Russia it's as belligerent. It's not blockade because we are, if we are talking about non-sanctioned goods, mm -hmm. We are talking about passengers. There is no blockade. There is absolutely free movement between the territory of uh, Russian mainland and uh, Kaliningrad uh, region through the territory of Lithuania. Now we are talking about this concrete group. And of course we need a precise uh, uh, setting of uh, uh, just specific features and reglement how we can apply those this fourth package of sanctions and uh, we are waiting for uh, European Commission's explanation to, to give that guidance I wonder ever since the war started is Vladimir Putin always on your mind the idea that uh, for Lithuania the Baltics this is almost an existential threat potentially too no we are concentrated on the our economic progress prosperity of our people and you know we don't have the time to think all the time about Vladimir Putin. Of course, we understand that situation in the eastern uh, part of Europe is uh, really uh, dangerous. And we uh, strongly condemned this war against Ukraine. We are a very keen supporter of Ukraine, mm -hmm. uh, trying to help to assist them by all means, by military means, uh, economically, uh, humanitarian mean, and of course, political uh, component is very important too. So this is the reason why Lithuania is very enthusiastic supporter of uh, candidate granting candidate status to Ukraine. And I hope very much, uh, and I am looking forward that it, it will uh, happen this this evening. And, and of course, you've said Ukraine has to win because it's the right thing. But if it doesn't and it gets defeated by Russia, the repercussions of that could be enormous for the rest of Europe. What do you mean by that? And what does victory of Ukraine mean for you? The victory of Ukraine means a victory of uh, just historic truth, because they are fighting for uh, their freedom for the right of the country, of the people of the country, to decide about the future, about their destiny. And nobody else, and especially external forces, cannot decide where Ukraine have to do, uh, what uh, Ukraine have to do and where we should go. Uh, Ukraine is, according to, 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 I am fully convinced that Ukraine is European nation because they prove every day by fighting uh, against uh, the aggressor that they defend European values, they defend democratic values. And so they are fighting not only for their freedom, they are fighting for our freedom, for the freedom of European Union too. And sir, next week there's a NATO meeting. Of course, President Biden will be there. The Baltics, your country, you've said we need more troops here stationed. The eastern flank needs to be a priority. This is not just about China. Russia is an equal threat. What are you going to tell the President of the United States? This is very important to have very 
uh, adequate evaluation of the situation, what is happening in the eastern uh, flank of NATO. And we see the security issue is becoming more and more important. The threats are becoming materializing very war. fast. It's a new Cold War. Uh, I don't want to 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 talk about uh, uh, some 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 threats which are theoretical. But we first of all we have to spend much more attention to the security of eastern flank in order to uh, make deterrence factors as mo most effective as it, if it is possible. And this is very important not to show our willingness in case of aggression, but to show that we are ready to uh, increase the number of troops, to increase the uh, military equipment uh, in our countries. And of course, uh, very important is to switch to the current air policing regime in Baltic countries, to air defense regime. It is very important too. And I am looking forward uh, that conclusion text of uh, NATO will be suitable to cooperate, to work with the uh, leading country of our EFP troops in Lithuania, uh, namely Germany. I signed a, a communique with the uh, German uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, few, uh, two weeks ago. And according to this communique, uh, Germany is committed to send additional troops up to brigade level. So the scale up for uh, military presence in Lithuania. And I think this is very important to increase or to scale up the military presence of other countries in Baltic, other Baltic countries too, in Latvia and Estonia, namely. Well, President, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you, of course, in Bloomberg as always. And your message is clear, appeasement is not gonna work with Russia. Thanks thank so much. much. Tom? Maria, thank you so much. Maria Tadeo, in a conversation, folks, I honestly never framed in my lifetime. I never thought we would hear that kind of tone, those statements from a member of the Baltic states. And Marita Sen joins us here with Energy Aspects. And I do want to note we protect the copyright of all of our guests. I can't say enough about the acuity of Energy Aspects uh, notes. You can get them from their people as you can. And Dr. Sen, I, I want to speak here about demand, which the fears are premature. And what I love about the Energy Aspects note is how geographic it is. The elasticities or responsiveness of demand it's different on the Pacific Rim than it is in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. What part of your oil demand study now is the most important for our listeners and viewers? I would say, first of all, thank you, Tom. Uh, very kind words indeed. But I would say have to, we have to focus on Asia because all the focus right now is on the U.S. in terms of the market, right? And obviously with the U.S. Fed raising interest rates, everybody is now expecting a recession. The questions have moved from oh, are we going to be in a recession to how deep is it going to be to how does it compare to past recessions? Whereas nobody is actually looking at emerging markets. Asia is 18 months behind us in their <laughs> reopening cycle. They have just started to reopen right. from COVID. And by the way, China hasn't even started to reopen. So there is quite a lot of upside to those demand, even our mm -hmm. own demand numbers for 2023, depending on that cadence of the Chinese reopening. 
And Lisa, this is absolutely critical. The hyper-analysis in microeconomics of Amrita Sen, different from what we see at J.P. Morgan, but both of them are completely focused on demand responsiveness on the Pacific Rim. That's the common feature of two different houses. And sure, there's a lot of distinction in each region. The overall picture, though, is a tight oil market. And Amrita, you highlight that as well. How much is what we're seeing right now a brief cooling in some of the uh, fears of the tightness of the market before we reassert uh, price up for the for a barrel of crude, especially as some people think that there already is a recession, in our word, baked into the price of oil. Yeah, I mean, look, have the balances necessarily turned out to be exactly what we had forecast after the Russian invasion? No. Uh, Russian supplies are still hitting the market, probably about a million barrels per day or more more or less more than what we had expected. But they are still down about a million barrels per day. But equally, we've had the SPR. At the same time, demand is still coming in higher. So to your point, the market is incredibly tight despite some of those moving parts. I think the bottom line is underlying inventories are so low spare capacity is so low that you only need a little bit of movement, like such as Libya going offline for a couple of days, can really swing balances from being solvable to unsolvable in the matter of hours. So what we are seeing right now is, again, this fear of a recession turning uh, people to kind of doubt the demand recovery and say, okay, you know, we've got all this SPR barrels, but if demand doesn't keep up, prices are going to come down. But I will also highlight a couple of other things, more technical factors. We tend to get sovereign producer hedging at this time, you know, uh, large producers in North America, even in Asia. And that has started. And it's a low liquidity environment, which means that even take away all the fundamentals, there will be some downward pressure on prices in the near term. But ultimately, especially going into the winter, we think prices are going to head back higher again. So, Amrita, maybe the best way to characterize this is a head fake, if you believe that this is hedging uh, by sovereign entities. How much of a head fake could it be? How much do you still see energy prices rising heading into the winter months? I mean, do we think prices are going to go back to 120 or 125 to $140 range for crude? Yes, absolutely. But does that mean that we don't fall $10 first? I think we could definitely go down first. And I think for traders, that matters a lot, right? It's always about the entry point. But I think more in terms of consumers and refiners, ultimately the trajectory is higher. And again, forget crude prices for a second. Think about diesel, gasoline. Those mm-hmm. prices have barely moved because the underlying fundamentals are so strong right now. Crude tends to move a lot more with these macro headlines. Product prices don't. And I think that really tells you where the fundamentals are. Yeah. And I think going into the winter, the risk of a diesel price spike is much, much higher. Okay, well, Amrita, as we talk about going into the winter, let's talk about whether or not Europe is going to be adequately prepared for the cold weather. You had Germany today triggering phase two of its emergency gas plan, the alarm Mm -hmm. phase, I believe it's called. What happens if we start to see actual gas rationing in Europe? I think there's a real risk of that. I mean, we believe that. Our team absolutely believes that. We've already put together a list of which industry is going to be hurt, Uh, so steel, cement, fertilizer, and and so on. But I would say that we are starting to see countries restart coal plants. So I think the choice has been made. Again, it was always about kind of green energy versus energy security. I I do think we're starting to see the move towards guaranteeing 
let's keep the lights on. Uh, and as long as whoever has coal capacity decides to bring coal capacity back, then I don't think the downturn in industry is going to be as severe as we are expecting mm. right now, just assuming that gas gets turned off. Amrita Sen, thank you so much. Just a brilliant note from Energy Aspects this morning out of Houston and London. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's go right there now with Andrew Hollenor's chief U.S. economist, Citibank, of course, with an important uh, call for a much higher rate and terminal value and all the other mathematical mumbo-jumbo. Andrew, I want to go to 10 a.m. tomorrow morning, which you and I agree and Michael McKee agrees, I think all agree, Inflation expectations are important. They have spiked up. Are we unanchored in our expectations? Yeah, critically important, Tom. I think that was kind of the last data point that the Fed could still point to and say there was some notion that we weren't on a more inflationary journey. And as that University of Michigan 5 to 10-year expectation lifts above 3%, and then we'll see where it comes in tomorrow, uh, that that just increases the concern that there really is an embedded sense to this inflation. I think we already saw it in, in the labor market, like you were just talking about, where we have wage growth by various different measures, you know, four to six percent wage growth. Chair Powell was talking about that yesterday. Um, and then you have price growth that is, you know, six percent plus, depending on the measure that, that you look at. Um, so, so I think there's a notion of a wage price spiral here. Um, I think a little bit of what we're seeing at University of Michigan is confirming that also. Um, just like Mike McKee was saying, it's, it's not that the five to 10 year expectation is a correct expectation, but it just tells you something about how 
inflation is becoming a structural factor in the economy. Yeah, but just as quickly as people get used to that, Andrew, how much is the labor market shifting already? And we're not necessarily seeing that in claims going up, although you know they ticked up a little bit, but really it's not that significant. How much are we seeing just job listings being taken down or not filled or companies paring back some of their business ambitions? Yeah, I, I think that's what's difficult here is as an economist, you're always looking at two things. You're looking at the level of activity and the level of strength. But then you're also looking at the direction of travel. And really what you want to get right is the direction of travel, because that's going to determine where you're going. And we, we know a lot of things are very strong. We know the labor market has been very strong, continues to be very strong. Um, lots of job openings, uh, relatively few unemployed individuals. Um, but you know that, that kind of leading edge of the direction of travel, the weekly initial jobless claims data, that's giving me a lot more of a real-time signal of the labor market than something like job openings, which has lagged a couple months. Um, so if you look at those initial claims, again, the, the level is still very low, hard to think that um, it's a difficult time to find a job in most sectors, at least, um, because the vacancies are so high. So it's not so much of a concern about the labor market being soft today. Everybody would agree it's strong today. Um, but I'm, I'm watching those claims. I think that what we're seeing now is, you know, Kind of some seasonal noise, nothing to get too concerned about. Um, but it's definitely the case if you bring economists like me back on the show um, a month from now, two months from now, and we've seen these initial jobless claims that have continued to trend up. Uh, we'll have a lot more pessimistic view. Well, Tom has done a really good job today, not just talking about the domestic labor market, but looking internationally and what the ramifications from some of the uh, global downdraft has been. And that has been in the stronger dollar. And in addition to jobless claims, we also got the current account balance out for the United States, which surprised to the downside. We have a record trade deficit once again, as the strong dollar allows the U.S. to import more goods. How does this factor into your view on the GDP level, considering the prowess of the dollar and the ongoing sort of disinflationary object of that, but not the money coming back into the U.S. economy. Yeah, so the trade balance has really been kind of swinging around wildly, which is kind of a combination of the post-COVID reopening phase of the economy as, as trade kind of got more fully restarted um, uh, as the economies reopen globally. And then this kind of pattern of well, you had renewed waves of COVID, which are disrupting goods. And then you had supply chain issues, right, which on, on top of that. Um, so I, I'm really being very careful with that trade data right now in terms of interpreting it as any kind of longer term trend um, and where the economy is going. Um, if I look at the effect of the stronger dollar, um, I think what, one thing that's maybe surprising, maybe even a little bit surprising to, to me and how this has played out, um, you know, like Tom was saying, we have revised up our terminal Fed funds policy rate forecast to above 4% now wow. um, and getting there in the first quarter of 2023. Um, so, you know, we're really getting rates to quite high levels in the U.S. Um, that's not an out there view anymore. The you know, market has been pricing something not, not too far off from that um, when we were at higher yield levels. Um, and the dollar, yes, has strengthened. Um, but, you know, if you had just told me six months ago, you know, we're all going to kind of think that Fed funds effective is getting above three and a half percent. Um, where's the U.S. dollar? I would have thought a lot stronger than where it is now. So I think relative to that counterfactual, it's you know maybe not as much of a slowing factor for the economy. 
Andrew, I mentioned this earlier in the show, but when Powell was testifying on Capitol Hill yesterday and Elizabeth Warren was asking him if a rate hike would solve higher grocery prices or higher prices at the pump, his answer obviously was no. The Fed isn't equipped to deal with some of those more supply-side-driven challenges. What is your confidence that the Fed actually can get demand down enough to the extent that it actually will offset persistent tight supply? Yeah, it's a really important question. And, you know, th those questions that Chair Powell is answering um, yesterday and, you know, again today just, just show how difficult this moment is for monetary policy and for policymakers. Um, when there's a supply side constraint and it's persistent, the only thing you can do is damp demand to try to bring the economy back into equilibrium and bring inflationary pressure down. Um, I'm very confident to answer your question that the Fed will be able to slow demand su su sufficiently. Um, to bring demand down. Um, the issue is how much slowing is that going to be? How much of an output gap does the Fed need to create? Um, how much weakness in the labor market? If you look at the Fed summary of economic projections, they have the unemployment rate that just moves up by a few tenths of a percentage point. Um, so if you keep moving interest rates higher, mm -hmm. if you keep tightening financial conditions, it will slow down the economy. Um, the, the real issue for the Fed is not whether or not they well. can slow it down. It's can they slow it down and have it be a relative moderate slowdown and, and still get inflationary right. pressure down? Andrew, thank you so much. Andrew Hollenhorst with Citigroup here with that shocking terminal rate statistic above 4%. I'm going to call that on the edge of outlier on Wall Street. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.